I got a brand new sweetie, better than the one before. Oh, she's got everything and a little bit more. Hello, and welcome to episode 156 of Additional History Headlines You Probably Missed. I'm your host, Tiffany Clark, and today I have an extra unique episode for you. The whole point of this podcast is to pick a famous day from history, a day that made a lot of headlines, and then tell you what else was being reported on that same day. However, there weren't headlines for today's subject. The news didn't make the newspapers, at least not for a few more weeks, and even then it was just a few newspapers. But since it's something that's still going on today, well over a hundred years later, I wanted to cover this subject. Instead of reading you a headline, I'll just tell you about the event from other sources. Today's episode date is May 8th, 1886, and that was the very first day that Coca-Cola was sold. See, I told you it was iconic. Coca-Cola was created by a man named John Pemberton. John was born in 1831, and he earned a medical degree from the Reform Medical College of Georgia when he was just 19 years old. That seems mighty young to me, but times were different back then. John started out practicing medicine and even surgery. And then during the Civil War years, he fought on the side of the South and became a lieutenant colonel. When the war ended, he moved to Atlanta and started his own patent medicine company. Because that's what everyone did back then, right? He called it the Pemberton Chemical Company. One of his most popular things was something he called Pemberton's French Wine Coca, which was some sort of mixture of wine and coca extract that was supposed to help with nervous disorders and headaches. Fast forward to 1885, and Atlanta banned the sale of alcoholic drinks, so they could no longer put the wine into the mixture. John knew that in order to keep his cells up, he was going to have to come up with something else. He started mixing things up in his backyard, and he came up with the Coca-Cola that we know today. Well, sort of. The original mixture had cola nuts, which have a lot of caffeine in them. It also had a lot of sugar to make up for the lack of wine and cocaine. Yes, the rumors about that are true. John then took his mixture to Jacob's Pharmacy in town and mixed the syrupy mixture with carbonated water to make a soda. On May 8, 1886, the first glass of Coca-Cola was sold. They started advertising the soda a couple weeks later on May 29th. And during that year, they averaged about nine glasses a day. That's pretty much nothing. Of course, the drink was marketed as a brain tonic. John had a bookkeeper named Frank Robinson, and he was the one who came up with the name Coca-Cola, and the script font that is so iconic and still used to this day. Well, after a year or so of selling the product, John decided that he just really couldn't see any potential in the drink, and he didn't want to keep throwing time and money into producing and marketing it. In 1887, Atlanta repealed their alcohol laws, and he went back to focusing on his wine coca drink. The next year, in 1888, he sold the rights to Coca-Cola for just $1,750. Now, before you feel too sorry for him, 
you should know that he died shortly after the sell, and he never knew that he'd missed out on such a huge product. I can say the same for his family, though. The company would end up changing hands again, but in 1891, Asa Candler acquired it, and the Coca-Cola company we know was born, with bottles of the soda being sold all over the world by the end of the century, and minus the cocaine in 1905. Through great advertising campaigns, including ones that sometimes pull at your heartstrings, Coca-Cola has remained one of the top-selling drinks for more than 100 years. So, let's open some more newspapers and find out what else was going on around the country the day it made its debut. For my first additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the Boston Daily Globe out of Massachusetts. The headline says, Emily Burton's Sentence. This is a murder case, and it's one that the New York Times called a queer murder case. This case actually started the year before, in October 1885. A Rhode Island resident named Benj J. Burton was found lying on his kitchen floor, dead. The medical examiner was called, and he determined that Mr. Burton had been killed by a bullet to the chest. The question then became, was it murder or suicide? The medical examiner looked around. He investigated the scene. The neighbors were questioned, and he decided that nothing looked suspicious or out of the ordinary. For whatever reason, Mr. Burton had decided to kill himself. End of story, case closed. The other investigators agreed, and Mr. Burton's body was removed from the home and taken to the funeral home to be prepared for burial. Two days later, with his grieving family all around, Mr. Burton was laid to rest. Now, if this was really the end of the story, I wouldn't have told this story in the first place. Mr. Burton had barely been covered with dirt when rumors started to go around town. People said that the Burton family had been quarreling a lot, and they started raising questions over whether or not Mr. Burton's death had really been a suicide. What if the family covered something up to make it look like a suicide? Well, the rumors soon reached the ears of the local police, and they decided that the information was worth looking into further. So, just two days after Mr. Burton was buried, they dug him back up. The medical examiner, along with three other doctors and at least two witnesses, went to the gravesite and performed the autopsy right there in the cemetery. They dug around in the body and found the bullet that had gone into Mr. Burton's chest. It went right through his ribs, into his heart, and stopped near his spine. They said it would have killed him instantly. Well, there was another bullet wound in Mr. Burton. That one was in his head. They dug around again and found the bullet lodged in the left side of his head. After the doctors all conversed with each other, they determined that, although not an ideal situation, the bullet wound to the head wouldn't have killed him right away. It probably wouldn't even have, quote, deprived him of his senses or power of will. 
again, they decided that it was quite possible that Mr. Burton shot himself in the head, didn't die, so he decided to go straight for his heart to make sure he ended his life. Now, the newspaper didn't specifically say, but I believe they held a coroner's inquest with a jury because the investigation seemed to be more of a trial. The next step in all of that was to question Mr. Burton's family and friends. He had two daughters, Maria and Emma, and a son-in-law, Maria's husband, Alan Dorsey. Investigators questioned all of them. And then again, they brought in the neighbors, and they were questioned. Then they brought in the clerks from wherever it was that Mr. Burton had worked, and they were questioned. They even questioned the milkman who delivered to the Burton household. Nobody had any information to give them that would dissuade them from thinking the death was anything other than a suicide. That is, until they started digging in with the questions to the daughters and son-in-law. I'll read you the official statement given by Maria. She said, Benjamin J. Burton was my father. His family consisted at the time of his death of my sister, my husband, myself. I, for my sister, kept house for him. The last time I saw Father was the night before this happened, on the 5th, when he called my sister and myself downstairs and talked over many things. He said since his illness, he didn't expect to live very long. He spoke considerably about his affairs and was much concerned about my sister. He said, I don't know how much I'll leave her. I may not live many days, perhaps not more than two or three. I wish I had given her a trade. Maria then continued and said, the conversation took place in the dining room about 7 o'clock. He went out that night. I don't know what time he came in. Next morning, I saw him come around the back way to breakfast. I had been making a dress for Mrs. Traeger and went there to take a measure. I was there about five minutes and went to the post office. I returned from there, coming in the front door. I passed through the dining room into the kitchen. There, I saw my father on the floor. I screamed and called my sister went for Mrs. Traeger and Mrs. Morrison. I don't know what happened after that. My husband is studying to be a doctor. This is his third year of study. He attends the University of Pennsylvania. He has lived with my father since I was married. He did not pay board, either for himself or for me. My father didn't wish it. My father was affectionate and continued so. My father never spoke to me about my husband and I remaining in the house or about his remaining. The best of feeling existed between my father and my husband. When the younger daughter, Emma, was questioned, she said pretty much the same things her sister had said. When the son-in-law, Alan, was questioned, he insisted he and Mr. Burton had always gotten along great, and he just really didn't know anything about his death. There was a widow that lived near the Burton home, and she testified that she heard Maria scream and ran to the home to see what was wrong, and she was the first to arrive. She said that Mr. Burton had often complained to her about his feelings and that he wished he was dead. And just a few days before he died, he even told her that he wished there was a hole big enough for him to just crawl into and be buried alive. Then, two days before he died, he told the woman that if he had a pistol ready right then, he'd shoot himself in the brains. The poor woman had always thought he was joking and laughed and given some silly reply. When they interviewed a co-worker, he said that he knew Mr. Burton had had a lot of debt at one point, and that he actually still owed the co-worker some money, but that he'd been paying it off 
and his financial situation definitely was on the upturn. Mr. Burton had recently talked to the co-worker about selling his house, paying off the mortgage on it, and then buying a small cottage to live in. And he did say that he'd raised his daughter Maria and always paid for everything for her, but now that she was married to a perfectly capable man that he didn't even know until they were married, he didn't think he should have to get up every day and work so hard to keep all of them fed and sheltered. But that was the only complaint the co-worker ever heard from Mr. Burton. As days and weeks passed, the investigators questioned more and more people. They couldn't find a good reason for Mr. Burton to take his life. But they couldn't find a good reason for someone else to take it either. But the more and more people they talked to, they started to notice a trend. People didn't think that the relationship between Mr. Burton and his son-in-law, Alan Dorsey, was nearly as good as Alan had made it out to be. They were convinced that the son-in-law was hiding something from them. As the rumors continued to circulate, and as the days passed, more and more people started packing the chamber at the courthouse where the inquest was being held. People were packed up against the rails, they were in the hallways, and they were even packed into the stairways. Finally, a neighbor testified that they had overheard, or maybe it was eavesdropped on, a conversation between Mr. Burton and his daughter Maria. They were saying something about a letter and money, and Mr. Burton was mad at her for something she had done. Well, when his niece stood up to testify, she said that Maria Burton had stolen a lot of money from her when the niece came to help with Maria's wedding. And then an army surgeon stood up, and he said that he had no bearing on the case other than from someone who had been around a lot of death. The man said he'd read about the wounds and got curious. He insisted that if the gunshot wound to the head really had been self-inflicted, Mr. Burton's hair would have been singed. But it wasn't. He also insisted that the head wound would have rendered Mr. Burton unconscious, so he wouldn't have been able to then shoot himself in the chest. And last, but certainly not least, there was unchewed food in Mr. Burton's mouth when he died. If he were going to kill himself, wouldn't he at least finish chewing and swallow first? Then Mr. Burton's son got on the witness stand. Apparently he lived somewhere else and hadn't been in the town the day of the murder. Anyway, he told the court what kind of guns his father had and told them that the gun used in the killing wasn't his father's, even though his sisters had insisted it was. As you can imagine, these testimonies started to send whispers through the crowd gathered at the courthouse. Then, almost a month later, the day before Thanksgiving of 1885, the newspaper printed another article, and this one opened with this line, The Mystery of Benjamin Burton's Death, which occurred at Newport, Rhode Island on the morning of October 6th, has been at last solved by the confession of the young daughter of the deceased, and what seemed at first to be the almost unaccountable suicide of a man who had a very good season's business proved to be one of the most cold-blooded murders ever perpetrated. Yes, it was a murder. Emily Burton couldn't take the lies anymore, so she called for the detective and the coroner to come to her house and she told them that a week or so before her father died, Maria, Alan, and Mr. Burton had been having a, quote, lively talk 
about them moving out of his home. The next day, Maria went to Emily and told her it was a shame because her father had promised them some money. Then, the day before Mr. Burton died, Alan went to Emily and flat out told her that he was going to kill her father. She didn't say anything to try to stop him. The next morning, when Mr. Burton went in and sat down to breakfast, Emily walked into the room and got a broom. Then she took a back upstairs, and Alan asked where her father was. He told her, quote, This is a good time. He sent his wife out to talk to the neighbor, and to make sure that the neighbor didn't enter the home until Alan and Emily were back upstairs. And then Emily watched the front door while Alan went to the kitchen. She didn't try to stop him. She heard one gunshot, heard her father fall to the floor, and then heard the second gunshot. Emily then went to the kitchen doorway, but Alan wouldn't let her in. He thought it was important that Maria be the one to come home and find her father. But, even though Emily confessed, Maria and Alan never did, and they maintained their innocence. They were both arrested, but were said to be model prisoners. Emily was never officially arrested before her trial, and she was said to be weak-minded, and there was even speculation that she confessed because of how hard the detectives were questioning her. People didn't think any of them would end up serving prison time for what they did. In fact, some newspaper article writers still believed the death to be suicide. And that brings us to May 8, 1886, the same day Coca-Cola was being sold for the first time Emily Burton was being sentenced for aiding and abetting in the killing of her father. Her sentencing came before Maria and Alan even had their trial, and I'm sure Emily's sentence greatly worried them. Emily Burton was sentenced to life in prison, shocking everyone. Newspapers reported that Maria's trial was going to be delayed. Apparently she was pregnant and due within the next couple of weeks. All of her family had consumption, and it was assumed that she would soon have it, too. But, surprise, surprise, Maria didn't fall victim to consumption, and she gave birth to a healthy baby boy. The trial of the Dorseys began about a month later, and they took the baby to their trial with them. After many long hours and days in court, Maria called for a priest to be brought down to the jail to talk to her. She finally gave in and made a confession, telling him, that everything Emily said was true, and that she needed to be punished for what her husband had done to her father, who was a good man. Maria and Alan were both sentenced to life in prison, just like Emily. For my second additional history story of the day, I'm taking an article from the May 8, 1886 edition of the Savannah Morning News out of Georgia. The headline really doesn't give much away, but it says, Whirl of a Waterspout. In the days leading up to May 8th, many places around the United States had been having horrible weather with really bad storms. Missouri and Kansas both got dumped on with rain and hail. In Osage City, Kansas, it hailed for 30 minutes straight, and by the time it finished, the hail was a few inches deep. 80% of windows in town that were on the north-facing sides of buildings and homes were shattered by the hail. 
In Springfield, Missouri, the damage to homes totaled about $125,000, or about $4 million in today's money. Close to 40 people had their homes flooded out, and many in that town had to be saved and taken to higher ground by men on horseback. In Aiken, South Carolina, a huge lightning storm came up, and the Bailey home was struck by it. Lawrence Bailey, his wife, and his daughter all received horrible shocks, and at the time the newspaper article was written, it seemed like the shock might be fatal to all three of them. The daughter wasn't expected to make it through the night, but the wife had slightly better odds even though she'd been terribly burned. In Emporia, Kansas, a water spout formed on a creek. A nearby farmer saw the water spout coming and hurried to gather his wife, his two children, and his brother into a wagon so that they could flee the path of the water spout. But despite their best efforts, the family didn't move fast enough, and they were overtaken. The wife and youngest child were drowned, and the farmer almost drowned while trying to save them. The uncle did manage to save himself and the other child. But perhaps the worst weather-related incident that day came in Fort Scott, Kansas. An ice dam had built up and was holding back a lot of water. When the dam suddenly gave way and broke loose, all of that water went crashing downstream and flooded out the valley. Sarah Brown was a young widow who had a home in the valley near the water, and she and her home were swept 100 yards downstream before coming to a stop in a grouping of trees. Mrs. Brown wasn't alone in the home, though. She had four children with her. As you can imagine, it was a very scary situation. And even though they survived the initial float down the river into the trees, they were stuck there. And the water around them kept getting higher and higher and higher until it was at least several feet in the home. Sarah did the best she could to keep her children out of the water. But she had a six-month-old infant that she had to hold in her arms the entire time to keep it above the water line. So the other three children were, in a way, left on their own. Her five-year-old son did his best to keep himself out of the water, but when it got really high, he started to slip. He couldn't keep his head above the water anymore. Sarah rushed to help her son, and in the process, the little baby slipped from her arms. The baby drowned before they were able to find it. The rest of them were saved when rescuers came but it was a truly awful day. For my third and final additional history story for the day, I'm taking a headline from the Nest City Graphic out of Nest City, Kansas. The headline simply says, Millington's Ghost. This article talks about the little village of Millington, and this is how it's described at the beginning of the article. It says, Millington is a section of the state lying in the town of Haddam, about five miles back from Goodspeed's Landing on the river, and joins the township of Colchester. Millington Green is at its center. Now, nowhere in the story does it actually say what state Millington Green is in. So I had to do a little bit of research using all of those town names, and area names, and I'm pretty sure, like 99% sure, that this story takes place in Connecticut. 
Anyway, Millington Green was a collection of old homes, a church, and a school. And when I say old homes, I mean old even for the 1800s. Many of the homes were built in the 1700s and the very early 1800s. At one point, it was a thriving town on a trade route, and there were multiple flourishing general stores where a lot of the produce from the surrounding area was sold to be taken on to the West Indies trade routes. But about the time of the Civil War, the trade route shifted and Milligan Green started to decline. Edgar Martin lived in Millington, and he was described as a tall, lank man of true Yankee physique. He was a farmer who owned a lot of acres of land, and he also dealt in lumber, specifically railroad ties. Edgar had a nice creek running through his property, and men from Hartford had come and stocked it with nice trout, and then they would pay Edgar to keep poachers away from it. For the most part, Millington was a safe and quiet area, except for the ghost. In 1886, a lot of residents started reporting that they were seeing a ghost around town, and it was terrifying a lot of people, even Edgar Martin himself. About two weeks before this article was written, Edgar had taken a three-yoke team of oxen to a neighboring town to deliver an order of railroad ties. He finished the job and was on his way back that evening. The road was rough, a lot of it was uphill, and it was covered in forest land. Since the ox he had didn't move very fast, it wasn't usually until after dark that Edgar made it home from these trips. He said that that night the moon was in its last quarter, so that I can imagine that it was extra dark outside. The woods were gloomy and weird, according to Edgar. And then suddenly, something spooked one of his pairs of oxen, and they jumped to the side. Their sudden movement pulled Edgar from the monotony of the road and the dark, and he quickly looked around to see what it was that had frightened them. And then he saw it. Walking about 20 feet in the middle of the road in front of his wagon was a small little man. He was only about three feet tall, and he was wearing a cloak that started at his shoulders and then flared out as it went down to his feet. On his head, he wore a peaked hat, and he was carrying a cane that was probably twice as tall as he was. He was using that cane to help him walk, since he had small, deformed legs. At first, the sight of someone suddenly appearing on the road scared Edgar, but it made him even more nervous when he realized that the man was staying the same distance ahead of him in his wagon, and that slowing down or speeding up didn't change the distance between them. The little man didn't seem at all concerned about the wagon following him. The oxen decided they weren't scared of him after all, and kept walking. Finally, although he was nervous, Edgar managed to build up enough courage to call out, Hello there, Cap'n! When the man didn't answer, Edgar yelled to him again, and asked where he was going. He told him he could get in the wagon and hitch a ride because it would be a lot easier than walking. Still, the man didn't answer. Then Edgar started to worry. What if he wasn't really a man, at least not an earthly one? He'd never seen anyone that looked quite like the man, or object, in front of him. Finally, he whipped up his team and started yelling, Look out! Look out! in an attempt to scare the man out of the middle of the road so that he could pass him. But no matter what Edgar did, 
the man kept the exact same distance ahead of them. It was impossible to overtake him. Edgar was a little bit scared, but he was also mad. Then another idea came to him. Suddenly he jumped off the wagon and ran forward as fast as he could to catch the little man. And he lashed his whip out right at the man's legs. The crack of the whip rang out in the night, echoing through the trees and sounding like a pistol had gone off. But it didn't sound as if it had hit anything. And then, right before Edgar's very eyes, standing in the middle of the road, the little man vanished. There was no sign of him anywhere. One second he was there, and the next second he was gone. Edgar was even more terrified than when the man had been there in front of him. He said he felt like he was surrounded by a thousand goblins and specters, even though nothing was there except for him and his oxen. He hurried to his wagon, and they took off down the road again. But he didn't feel safe until he finally saw the lights of his home. Now, supposedly there were other sightings of the ghost, or other ghosts in general, in Millington around that time. But Edgar's story was the only one I could find written out with all the details. And his story was printed over and over and over in newspapers all over the country that year. But by the end of the summer, the story and tales of the ghost had vanished, just like the little man in the road. Okay, for today's advertisement, I'm going to once again break from my normal routine. And instead of telling you about an advertisement from May 8th, 1886, I'm going to tell you about the first time I could find Coca-Cola advertised in the newspapers. Technically, the first time they advertised was May 29th, 1886, a few weeks after the soda started being sold at the soda fountain at the pharmacy. But the first time I could find it was June 6th, 1886. This advertisement is in the Atlanta Constitution, and it's an ad for Venable's Soda Fountain. It says, The king of all fountains and popular because uniformly kept up to the highest standards of excellence. The ad said that they had all of the most reliable health-giving mineral waters in the country on tap. It then gave a list of some of them, including Coca-Cola, which was listed as a healthy option. Friends, as always, thanks for listening to today's episode. Join me again this coming Thursday for a mini-episode. This time I'm going to jump forward more than 100 years to tell you the details of an event you might remember. Then join me the following Monday for an episode that you might be surprised to find I haven't covered yet. If you want to reach me, you can do so at additionalhistory at gmail.com or come over to the Additional History Headlines You Probably Miss Facebook group and check out the pictures of iconic Coca-Cola advertisements that I'll share there. Talk to you later.